Plans are already being made to rebuild Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, less than 48 hours after it was devastated by fire. About $1 billion has been promised to help restore one of France's best-known symbols. Roxana Severi is outside Notre Dame in the heart of Paris. Roxana, good morning. Good morning. The local newspaper, The Parisienne, is reporting that a fire alarm went off here at Notre Dame Cathedral shortly after 6 p.m. on Monday. But a computer bug showed the fire's location in the wrong place. The paper is also reporting the flames may have started at the bottom of the spire and may have been caused by an electrical problem in an elevator. Notre Dame stands damaged but defiant after a fire that raged for at least 12 hours leaving a gaping hole in its heart. Inside, where the spire collapsed in Monday night's fire, the altar is buried in debris, but its cross is almost shining, and pews are still in place. These other rescued artifacts were taken to Paris City Hall. Paintings, chairs, armchairs, and uh, objects, you know, candle uh, holders, and it was, uh, it was absolutely... Uh, extraordinary because it's a miracle you know what's safe here saved the french government says by brave firefighters who risked their lives to fight the flames french president emmanuel macron hailed them as heroes and vowed to rebuild the eighth century old cathedral within five years there's still some features that are architectural historian trisha meehan told us the time it takes to restore the gothic cathedral depends on the extent of the damage if in the end the stone structure has been compromised, that's a whole other ballgame. How long could that take to rebuild? Um, if they even decide to rebuild it, um, it would take a really long time because we're talking uh, about a lot of hand labor. So decades? Yeah. As France mourns, many people here are praying that however long it takes, Notre Dame will rise again. And cathedrals across the country to show solidarity plan to ring their bells tonight, marking 48 hours since the fire began. Catholic leaders here hope the bells will be heard beyond France's borders, just as scenes of the devastation here have resonated across the world. Nora? They have indeed. Roxana Siberi in Paris. Thank you. Plans well, for those of you who don't recognize me in a suit, my name is Dane. And I get the privilege of being the pastor here at First Christian Church. We're going to spend the next few minutes diving into God's Word together. Let me ask you a question. Uh, would you say that there are a lot of people who visit the United States every year? Tourists from around the world? Any guesses how many tourists visit the U.S. every year? Throw out a number. What do you think? Eight million. Okay, we're getting there. A little bit higher. Twenty million. Keep going. You ready for this? 76.9 million people from around the world visit the United States every year. And it surprises many to discover that the United States is not the most visited nation in the world. In fact, it's not even the second most visited nation. It's number three on the list. The second most visited nation in the world, believe it or not, is Spain. Almost 5 million more people visit Spain every year. 81.8 million people visit Spain every year. And the country that is visited by more people every year than any other nation in the world is the nation of France. You guys must be sharper than the first service. They were guessing Israel. Of course, they didn't get to see the video either. 
France is visited by about 10 million more people every year than the U.S. 86.9 million people visit France every year. And of those 86.9 million visitors to France each year, the most visited landmark in France, surprisingly, is not the Eiffel Tower. It's actually the cathedral at Notre Dame. 35,000 people every single day visit the cathedral at Notre Dame. That comes out to 13 million people every year. So try to wrap your mind around this number. 35,000 people every day visit this cathedral. This just blew me away when I heard this stat last week. If you look at the whole nation of France, 99% of all towns in France have a total population less than 35,000 people. And yet... 35,000 go to visit this cathedral every year. So I think it's safe to say that this past Monday, when tens of millions of people around the world were glued to their TV screens and glued to the Internet, watching the live video clips of this uh, great 800-plus-year-old structure being burned to the ground, hearts were dropping around the world. Millions upon millions of people were devastated. And as I was watching those video clips on Monday, my heart just sank because, shoot, I loved that Disney movie, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And there he was coming down the structure, and he's gliding through the water canals, and he's singing and calling. And Oh, that was just a minor part of the great history of that cathedral. So I was devastated like many people were around the world if... You know, we were to consider something that would hit closer to home. Imagine how devastated we would be if the Statue of Liberty went up in flames. Imagine if the Lincoln Memorial went up in flames or the White House went up in flames. We'd be devastated, wouldn't we? But as the week went on, I found myself asking the question, I wonder if I am somehow making a bigger deal of this fire than I should. And I think it's an honest question. And as we look at that cathedral, if we compare it to the White House or to the Lincoln Memorial or to one of those other monuments in the U.S., there was a deeper sadness that enveloped people because with millions upon millions of Catholics around the world, it wasn't just about an 800-year-old structure going to the ground. For many people, it was as if part of their faith and their religion went up in flames. And my friends, this should not be. I came across an article last week by a man by the name of Jim Dennison. And he wrote these words. I want to read them for you, see if you agree with them. He wrote, The fire that destroyed two-thirds of the Notre Dame Cathedral was indeed a tragedy. But fire cannot destroy the church of Jesus Christ. The strength of the church is not in her buildings, but in her people. Even if the cathedral had been totally destroyed, the church it represents would be just as strong and just as significant today. Amen? I've got to say there was only one sentence in that quote that I took issue with. And that's the one in the middle where he said, The strength of the church is not in her buildings, but in her people. The first half of that sentence is beautiful. The the strength of the church is not in her buildings, is it? But scripturally, the strength of the church is not in her buildings. The strength of the church is in her risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And on a day like Easter, on a day like Easter, on a day like Resurrection Sunday, when people in Notre Dame right now are are feverishly sifting through the ashes, looking for remnants of those artifacts 
and those, those pieces of furniture and those, those uh, things that they cling to as part of their religion. As people are feverishly looking through the ashes, on Resurrection Sunday, I think Jesus wants to speak to us loud and clear that they will not find him in the ashes because Jesus Christ is risen. Amen? I want you to open your Bibles. Open your Bibles, please, to Luke 24. If you didn't bring your Bible with you this week, we sure hope you'll be back with us next week with a Bible in hand. If you don't have a Bible of your own at home, we'd love to send you home with one today. Just let us know, and we'll get you a free New Testament to take home. Uh, We'd love to do that. We want to make sure everyone can read God's Word, not just on a Sunday, but any day of the week, any hour of any day of the week. So we're going to be in Luke 24. If you're using one of those blue Bibles from the rack in front of you, you'll find this to be the third book in the New Testament. Luke chapter 24, if you're using a blue Bible, you'll find it on page 1047, 1047 in one of those blue Bibles. The rest of you, please just turn to Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 1. Say amen if you're there. Here we go. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Hmm, that's curious. I added that part. That's not there. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men stood beside them in clothes that gleamed like lightning. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven disciples and all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. May God bless us as we study his word today. Would you pray with me? Father, this is your word, and we thank you, Lord, that your word was not just intended for 2,000 years ago, but it's intended for us today as well. So, Lord, open our minds and our hearts to what you want to teach us today through your holy word. Help us to have ears to hear. Shut out the distractions and change us as you want to change us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and turn to the person next to you and say, this message is going to be a good one today. Go ahead. Oh, I'm so encouraged. Thank you so much for saying that. So, as we look at Luke chapter 24 here, This is one of four accounts of the resurrection that we read about in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all historians that recorded for us the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record for us details of the resurrection. Now, interestingly, uh, many critics out there would say, well, these are just, you know, guys in the New Testament. They're not reliable historians. Well, how about going to a historian outside of the New Testament? How about the most respected first century historian that's not even Christian, he's Jewish, his name is Josephus. 
and he attests to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Other ancient historians attest to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But for our purposes today, let's zero in on these four historians, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and particularly Luke here, and see what they have to say about the resurrection of Jesus. I encourage you this time of year to look at each of those four accounts because if you put them together, it gives you a beautiful, detailed description of that first resurrection Sunday. As we put those details together, it goes something like this. It was before dawn on the first day of the week, the first day of the week, of course, being Sunday. And on that first Easter morning, before the sun went up, Mary Magdalene, along with at least four other women, went to the tomb with spices. Now, in those days, they had this tradition in Israel. When someone died, they would wrap them in burial cloths, like long rectangular strips of cloth. And they would wrap them over and over. And by the time the person was done, they'd kind of look like a mummy. And so you can imagine as they laid these strips down, what they would do is take these heavy ointments and these spices and they would put them down on top of each layer and then put another layer on top of that. And they would use between 75 and 100 pounds of spices wrapped in the grave cloths. And so what had happened, Jesus died on a Friday, on Good Friday, And before the sun went down and the Sabbath day began, because for the Jewish people, the day began at sundown the day before. And so it was important for the Jews in Jerusalem to make sure these bodies weren't still hanging on the cross as the Sabbath day was quickly approaching. And so they quickly brought the bodies off the cross. They quickly wrapped Jesus' body in these grave cloths and put them on the stone table inside this tomb that had been given by Joseph of Arimathea. And so in the haste to get this body wrapped and get him in the tomb before the Sabbath day came, they evidently didn't have time to go buy the spices and wrap them up in the cloths. So here we have Mary and the other four women, imagine, carrying some 75 to 100 pounds of spices to the tomb. And as they're walking toward the tomb, they had no idea what had just happened before the sun went up. They didn't know that what had happened was an angel had come down from heaven. They didn't know that there had been this localized earthquake and the hills shook where the tomb was dug out of. And they didn't know that those two soldiers were scared half to death when they saw the angel come down and roll the stone away and when they saw and felt that earthquake. They didn't know this had happened, so the sun comes up and they make it to the tomb just after sunrise and they're confused by what they see. I imagine them walking up and the first thing they notice is the campsite where those two soldiers had been held up for the last 36 hours. The campsite looked completely abandoned. Maybe the fire was still smoldering a little bit. Maybe there was one sandal left behind. And they're trying to figure out the situation and they're thinking through, well, we know there were soldiers here. And they're not here now. It sure looks like they left in a hurry. And if that's the conclusion they came to, they'd be right because they did leave in a hurry, didn't they? They were frozen like dead men, but when they came to their senses, these guys bolted. They were scared to death, this angel pushing the stone away. This stone was huge, would weigh more than a ton, more than 2,000 pounds. And to move the stone, you had to roll it uphill and put a wedge underneath it to hold it in place uphill so the entrance would be open. So these women have the 75 to 100 pounds of spices. They get to the tomb. The campsite has been abandoned. There might be an empty sandal there. They don't know. And they go inside and they look in the tomb and there is the stone table and there's no Jesus there. There's no body. And the strangest thing of all, the grave cloths are neatly laid on the table. That's not what you would expect. If he was somehow resuscitated and was unwinding his mummy cloths, they would be a mess on the floor just like any teenager's bedroom. But that's not what they see. These claws are neatly on the table as if 
the body had passed through the claws without disturbing them one bit. But that's impossible. Bodies can't pass through solid objects. But we discover later in the chapter that that very night Jesus was able to pass through the wall of a locked room because Jesus was alive. And that body that he was now living in was a resurrected body that would not decay and defied the laws of physics and didn't act like your and my bodies today, praise God. And so Jesus passes through the cloth. By the way, a little interesting question. Why did the angel roll the stone away? Was it to let Jesus out or to let the followers of Jesus in? Jesus didn't wake up on Easter morning, Help! Let me out of this tomb! Let me out of here! He didn't need the stone rolled away. He just passed through the walls. No big deal. It was rolled away so that his followers could go in and see the evidence that Jesus was alive. Amen? So, imagine these ladies. Put yourself in their sandals. There they are peeking in the tomb. The campsite's been abandoned. The grave cloths are neatly gathered there. They're not putting two and two together that Jesus had said over and over, I'm going to raise on the third day. They weren't putting the pieces together. And so these ladies are completely baffled. This just does not make sense. And they go from confusion to absolute fear as these two shining angels appear and start talking to them. And we read there in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 5, in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men, these angels, said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. That was an aha moment for these ladies. Ah, yeah, I do remember him saying that. Verse 5 we want to focus on today. Why do you look for the living among the dead? I like how the message paraphrases the angel's words here. The message puts it this way. Why are you looking for the living one in a cemetery? That's pretty good, isn't it? Why are you looking for the living one in a cemetery? It's a great question. Jesus wasn't hanging out in the tomb, was he? Why? Because tombs are for dead people. Jesus wasn't hanging out in the tombs. The angels were telling the ladies in no uncertain terms, Jesus isn't still in his grave clothes because grave clothes are for dead people. Jesus doesn't need spices to masquerade the smell of his decaying body because his body isn't decaying. Jesus is risen from the dead just as he said he would. So if you ladies want to see Jesus, you'd better stop looking in the cemetery. Because you won't find him here. Jesus is risen. Jesus is alive. Amen? Amen. So the angels give the message to these women. And they're taken aback and blown away. Because, wow, it is just as Jesus said it would be. This past week I was reading some different commentaries on this passage in Luke 24. And my favorite that I read was from a, a scholar, a Scottish Bible scholar from this past century. His name's William Barclay. He was a uh, professor as well as a pastor, and he's written commentaries on, I believe, most books of the Bible. And in his Luke commentary, Barclay suggests that people today are still making the same basic mistake that these ladies made at the tomb on the first Easter. And that mistake is this. We're looking for the living among the dead. He suggests that we 
have this cemetery type thinking where we believe or think something about Jesus Christ that is true enough, but it's only part of the truth. Many people believe things about Jesus Christ that at, at first glance those things look very true, but then we ask the question, would this be equally true of Jesus if he had never conquered death? Yeah, if he was still dead, that would still be true. And so it's part of the truth, but not the full truth. Let me share with you what I mean. Cemetery thought number one. By the way, if you have those message notes from your bulletins, uh, we'll give you the first blank to fill in in just a moment. Cemetery thought number one. Jesus was a great man. Jesus was a great man. Well, what's wrong with that, Dean? Are you saying you don't believe that Jesus was a great man? No, I absolutely believe that Jesus was a great man. What's wrong with saying he's a great man? Well, let me suggest to you there's a small problem when many people say this. You see, many people believe that Jesus was a great man, just like Abraham Lincoln was a great man, just like George Washington or Martin Luther King Jr. or Billy Graham or fill-in-the-blank was a great man. But Jesus isn't like those other great men, is he? Because all those other great men are dead. Jesus ain't dead. Jesus is alive. And so to say that Jesus was a great man is subtly leading us down a dangerous rabbit trail that hides us from the full truth about Jesus. Jesus was a great man, but that's just part of the story. Amen? That's just part of the story. The Bible tells us that Jesus wasn't just a great man. He was the great God-man. He was the only one that's ever walked this earth that was 100% man and 100% God all at the same time. He was the great God-man. And he was 100% man and 100% God 2,000 years ago. But Jesus Christ is still the great God-man today in 2019. He'll be the great God-man next year in 2020. A century from now, he'll still be the great God-man. And throughout all of eternity, Jesus Christ will always be the great God-man. And so when it comes down to it, Jesus is never a was. Jesus is an is. Saying that Jesus, in the words of William Barclay, saying that Jesus was a great man will not do. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. He is not merely a hero of the past. He is a living reality of the present. He is the great I am, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So the next time someone says, yeah, I believe Jesus is a great man, you can say, yeah, I believe that too. But that ain't half the story. The second cemetery thought that people oftentimes have today is that Jesus' teachings should be studied. His teachings should be studied. Well, that certainly seems true enough, doesn't it? Are you saying, Dane, we shouldn't study Jesus' teachings? No, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is what has become far too common these days is for people to stop at the end of that simple statement. And people will study the teachings of Jesus in the Bible, but they study them in much the same way that they would study Hamlet by Shakespeare, another great piece of literature. The same way they might study the Magna Carta, or the U.S. Constitution, or the Bill of Rights, or Little House on the Prairie. You just pick your favorite literature, and they would lump the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament together with that. It's great literature, 
It's helpful teaching. It's very instructive. It's very insightful. It's important for everyone to know. All those things are true, but what they've done is reduce the teaching of a living, breathing God to a relic of the past lumped in with other great literature written by men and women who have since died. Jesus' teaching, Jesus' word, is alive because he himself is alive. Because of that first Resurrection Sunday, Jesus' teachings can never be reduced to important literature. Jesus is alive, which means that his words are alive. His teachings are alive. I like how the writer of Hebrews puts it. He says, his teaching is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Notice in those verses, there's no past tense in reference to Jesus' word. There's no past tense. Jesus' word, it says, is living and active. Jesus' word penetrates our souls and spirit. Jesus' word judges our thoughts and attitudes. Jesus uncovers everything in us that is hidden. Once again, William Barclay, I think, says it so well. He writes, Beyond doubt, study is necessary, but Jesus is not only someone to be studied, he is someone to be met and lived with every day. Maybe you're here today and you've studied the Bible off and on during your lifetime. Maybe you're here today and the words of Jesus Christ in the New Testament are important to you, but you've never made that decision to enter a living, breathing relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know he wants to talk with you every day? Not just from 2,000 years ago. He wants to speak to you today on April 21st, 2019. When tomorrow comes, if God blesses you with tomorrow as well, he wants to speak to you then as well. Jesus Christ's word is living and active. It is not a relic of the past. It is something alive and well in the present. The third cemetery thought that I want to share with you is that Jesus' life should be modeled. Once again, this makes sense. Once again, this is true. Yeah, Jesus' life should be modeled, right? But many people approach that statement from a Jesus is still dead perspective. Jesus is our ultimate role model. If we're going to have any role model in our life, if we're going to pattern our lives after anyone, it should be Jesus Christ, right? But Jesus is not a dead role model. His life is not over. A dead role model can't continue to set good examples. A a dead role model can't answer all your questions, let alone show you how to do the right thing. Dead role models can only speak to us from the past, from their past lives. But Jesus... He conquered death on that first Easter morning. He is a living role model who continues to set a good example, who can answer all of your questions, who can show you how to do the right thing and can speak to us not only from the past, but also right here now in the present. I think our Lord Jesus Christ needs some hand praise today. Amen? He's alive. He is alive and active today. He helps us. He guides us. He is living, active as our Lord and Savior. He helps us like none other because Jesus Christ, as we saw a couple weeks ago in that message we looked at in Luke 9, Jesus is in a league of his own. Now, I want to ask you today, are you one who has been looking for Jesus in the cemetery? 
Have you been looking for Jesus in the cemetery? Have you made that same mistake those ladies made on that first Easter to look for the living among the dead? What do I mean by that? Well, like many people we know, maybe you believe that Jesus is just a great man. Just like you might say that MLK was a great man. Or Abraham Lincoln was a great man. Or Billy Graham was a great man. But... I hope you realize today that Jesus is so much more than a great man. Jesus is the God-man. Not a was, but an is. Maybe like many people in our colleges and universities, you believe that Jesus' teachings are important and should be studied. But all you've done is allowed the words of Jesus Christ and the teachings of Jesus Christ to remain up here in your head. And you've never allowed them to travel that important 18 inches between your head and your heart. Jesus Christ is not someone who is just an academic who is to be studied. His literature is not something that's just helpful and interesting just to enlighten your mind. He wants to transform your heart and transform your life. Maybe like many Americans searching for a good role model, you look up to Jesus, and that's a great start. We all should look up to Jesus. But he's not a dead role model. He's alive And he not only wants to be your role model, he wants to be your friend, he wants to be your savior, and he wants to be your master. He wants to be in the driver's seat of your life, not ever riding shotgun, but in that driver's seat, leading your life in the direction that God the Father would want it to go because you were created with purpose. You were put on this earth for a reason. God puts you here and he has the perfect plan for your life, a plan to prosper you and not to harm you, a plan to give you hope and a future. And that plan is much better, believe me, than any plan you could ever come up with on your own. Because your Creator knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your strengths better than you know them. He knows your weaknesses better than you know them. He knows your connections, your talents, your abilities more than you know them. He has a perfect plan for your life. And Jesus Christ came to set us free from the chains of sin that hold us back from pleasing our Creator God, from carrying out His purposes, from hearing His voice, from doing what He put us on this earth to do. Jesus Christ can set us free. I hope today you don't keep Jesus up here, but you allow him to invade your heart and your life. And you, if you've never done so before, accept him as your Lord and Savior. Well, at this point, well over a billion dollars has been pledged in support to rebuild the cathedral at Notre Dame. And I'm pretty confident that one way or another, that cathedral will be rebuilt. But I hope and pray that people aren't short-sighted enough to think that during the rebuilding process, Jesus is going to be hanging out in the ashes. Jesus isn't going to be hanging out in the ashes. And I've got a news flash for many Catholics out there. When they invest more than a billion dollars into restoring and rebuilding that great cathedral, Jesus still won't be hanging out in that building. Because you know what? Jesus isn't very concerned about buildings, is he? Jesus is concerned about people. I want to share with you a few verses in closing. Acts 17, 24, and 25 is a great passage. Paul the Apostle 
to the Gentiles is in the city of Athens, Greece. And he, it's one of the most religious cities in all of Greece at that time. And he goes into Athens in this place called the Areopagus. And the Areopagus Council were all of the think tank brainiacs in Athens that came together and discussed the latest and greatest ideas in religion and worship. And so they had this temple where these Areopagus Council dudes met. And they had all these idols to all the gods they knew about in Greek and Roman uh, history. And so uh, Paul notices as he's walking around this tomb to the unknown God, and he says, you know what, I'm going to tell you about this unknown God that you don't even know his name. And he says this in Acts 17. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by hands. Well, that'd be disappointing to a lot of people, wouldn't it? That'd be disappointing to a lot of people. He doesn't live in temples. Wait a minute, we spent a lot of money on this temple. We, we, we spent our, a lot of uh, blood, sweat, and tears putting this temple together. It took us 50 years to build this temple. Well, it says he doesn't live in temples made, made by hands. He goes on to say, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So you see, just as Jesus Christ doesn't hang out in cemeteries, he also doesn't hang out in temples. It surprises many people to know Jesus doesn't hang out in synagogues. The Spirit of God doesn't even hang out, brace yourselves, in churches. Well, that's heresy, isn't it? You're saying he doesn't hang out in church buildings? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Jesus is not terribly concerned with buildings. He's concerned himself then and now and in days to come until he sets up his kingdom on earth with people. Let me say it this way. Our living Savior spends his time among the living. Period. Our living Savior spends his time among the living. A few days before Jesus died on the cross, he was walking through the great temple courtyards. And that was the temple that had been built by King Herod. It was the largest temple of any of the temples that the Jews had ever had built in Jerusalem. And so the the 12 disciples are with Jesus. He's just a few days away from going to the cross. And they're looking at the building to their left and saying, whoa, look at that. And they're looking at the building to the right. Whoa, look at that one. And they're looking all around the temple and say, Jesus. Take a look at all these buildings. These things are amazing. Have you seen all this? This is just mind-blowing, Jesus. And Jesus responded by saying this in Matthew 24, verse 2. He said, you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And you know what? Forty years later, that's exactly what happened. As the Roman army came into Jerusalem and they burned the temple to the ground and dismantled every stone from another, leveling the temple. That's what the Roman army did, exactly as Jesus said they would. What happened to the beautiful Jewish temple will happen sooner or later to every building on planet Earth. Sooner or later, every building on planet Earth will be destroyed. Every house, every office building. Do I get an amen to that one? Every factory, every warehouse. Every mosque, every synagogue, every cathedral, every temple, and yes, even every church building will one day be destroyed. And you know what? It won't affect Jesus Christ one bit. Not one bit. Because we serve a risen Lord and Savior. 
He's alive and well on planet Earth, and he will one day judge both the living and the dead. So you and I had better spend less time focused on temporary buildings and more time focused on our relationship with him. One day he will come back and he will hold us accountable for these lives that we lived. Did we invest it in the life that Jesus Christ has offered us because he died on the cross and conquered death on Easter morning? Will we live our lives for him? I shared on Friday night at our Good Friday service that there were those two thieves on the sides of Jesus when he was crucified. Both thieves died by the end of that day. One thief woke up in heaven in paradise. The other thief woke up in hell. And it all came down to the decision that each of those thieves made. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? And the one thief decided to go with the taunts of the crowd and to make fun of Jesus and criticize Jesus and take some cheap shots at Jesus while he hung there. And he died an unforgiven man. And for the rest of eternity, he's going to regret that. And then the other one went against the crowd And instead of taking cheap shots at Jesus, he said, Lord, will you forgive me? And will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And that man was showered with grace and mercy that is indescribable. And that grace and mercy is available for you as well. Maybe you're like many. Jesus has been very academic to you. You went to Sunday school as a kid. You went through the catechism. You memorized the Lord's Prayer, part of the 23rd Psalm, the Beatitudes. It's all up here. But it does not transform your heart or your life on a daily basis. I urge you on this Resurrection Sunday to worship and love and serve and be in relationship with a living Savior. He is risen. He is alive today. And He is right here in this room, just a prayer away from anyone who's humble enough to reach out and say, Lord Jesus, would you come into my life? Would you make me brand new? Would you forgive me of my sin? Lord Jesus, would you change my life? I turn from my sin, and I'm going to put you in the driver's seat and follow you from this point forward. I'm going to obey you, Lord, by confessing you with my mouth as my Lord and my Savior. And I'm going to obey you by being baptized, just like you said anyone who believes in you should be. And Lord, it's not going to be about me from now on. It's going to be about you because you are now my Lord. You are now my Savior. And you could experience that same grace and mercy that that wise thief on the cross experienced in his final moments. What a blessing it is to serve a risen Savior. Some of you have heard me say before, I feel bad for the Buddhists because Buddha's still dead. Kind of feel bad for the Mormons sometimes because Joe Smith, he's still pushing up daisies. Christian scientist Mary Baker Eddy, still dead. Muhammad, still dead. Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ, there's a different story. As the angels said to those women on that first Easter, God says to us today, What are you doing? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is risen, just as he said. And that risen Savior will come into your life and transform it beyond anything you could imagine. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you did. Thank you for going to that cross, 
And thank you for conquering death on Easter morning because you loved us too much to stay dead. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you. We praise your name. And I pray, O oh God, that if there's anyone here today who has never made that decision to humble themselves and accept you as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day where they experience forgiveness for the first time. Where you wash them clean and make them, as you say in your word, like a new creation. Where the old is gone and the new has come. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would touch our hearts and not just our minds. I pray that you would transform our souls and our spirits in a way that only you can. Lord Jesus, we thank you that because of Easter Sunday, we can be in relationship with you. We can serve you. We can follow your example. We can talk with you. We can listen to you. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the privilege of following you as Lord and Savior from now and throughout all eternity. In Jesus' name.